0: I'm Phil Haas, Director of Marketing and Communications for Classic Stage Company. On this episode of the CSC Podcast, I'll speak with Carla Delegata about bilingual and multilingual classical theater. We'll talk about how long this tradition has been around, how it's used most effectively, and what can happen when it's embraced by audiences. That's all coming up on the CSC Podcast. CSC has recently launched the Coming Back Stronger campaign to raise funds to secure the long-term success and financial health of the company. The Coming Back Stronger campaign is a place for donors of all levels to show their support for CSC's work and mission and will ensure that CSC can reopen after the COVID-19 shutdown stronger than before. Coming Back Stronger means expanding our artistic programming to reflect all voices. It means welcoming all audiences to a safe space Means addressing the immediate financial impact of the shutdown and securing the future. The Coming Back Stronger campaign begins with you. Gifts of $50 or above will be recognized on our virtual donor wall. Find out more about the Coming Back Stronger campaign online at classicstage.org/slash coming back stronger. My guest today is Carla Delegata, an assistant professor of English at Florida State University. She's also the co editor of Shakespeare and Latinidad, a collection of essays forthcoming with Edinburgh University Press next year. She's also been awarded fellowships from the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, the Folger Shakespeare Library, the New York Public Library, and the American Society for Theatre Research. She also received the J. Leeds Barrel Dissertation Prize from the Shakespeare Association of America for the best dissertation in 2016. And her first monograph, Latinx Shakespeare's The Staging of Intracultural Theater, which is in process, explores the dramaturgy of cultural adaptations. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hello. It's great to be here.
0: So today we're going to talk about bilingual adaptations, translations uh, in the theater. And I'd love to start out by just explaining what that is, because there might be a bunch of people listening that have no idea what, what, what a bilingual adaptation means. So what is that for someone who's unfamiliar with it?
1: Well, there are different ways of experiencing bilingual theater. And and when we say bilingual, we can mean half in English in, in the United States and, and England and Australia and so forth, and half in another language. I've found that rarely bilingual theater is actually a 50-50 split, that typically a, a text, if we take, let's say, Romeo and Juliet, um, when we when you say a bilingual Romeo and Juliet, we can do the the Capulets speak Spanish and the Montagues speak English, and an a la West Side Story, um, or oftentimes it can be that the majority of the text is in English for understanding, but maybe some the parents to show a generational difference, for example, might speak Spanish or, or a different language. When it comes to uh, dramatic literature that's originally written in a different language, when we have Chekhov or Strindberg, sometimes that original language because we 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 see those plays in translation in English. And um, so sometimes that original language will be invoked in one way or another. And and one could actually um, kind of understand when the music and the background and things like that are in a different language. Even if the dialogue's in English, you may hear a lot of other things in, in a different language as well. So bilingual theater can happen when you hear two different languages on stage at the same time. But there are other types of what I might call bilingual theater in which we've seen a few casts perform in one language and then perform it in a different language on a different night. And um, that's a different way of engaging two different audiences. So it's kind of two, um, uh, two one-language type of productions done by the same cast or in the same space.
0: How long has this tradition of performing bilingual work been around because it's it's not new right this has been happening for for a very very long time
1: yes it has and it's i mean hundreds of years in the united yeah. states uh, there was a, a f- well, there was a famous italian actor tommaso salvini in, in the late 1800s and he would travel all over and he had the big great roles of a fellow and and when he came to the united states he would perform in italian with the rest of the people on stage speaking in english and it was this it had to do with kind of the nascent stages of american theater still thinking that the the big celebrity actors were from europe but it also had to do with the greatness of the role and of the actor you could understand and that's part of the reason in talking about treated like classical theater widely defined but but stories that we know we can understand them in other languages because we know the story and so there there have been people who've been speaking other languages a, multiple, a multiplicity of, of languages on American stages for, for quite a long time.
0: It's interesting too, because, you know, even, uh, you know, opera, for example, you know, that people have been listening to opera and watching operas for, for centuries. And it's always been predominantly, at least for people that speak English, it's in another language. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to me how that's not questioned in the same way that that theater sometimes is by by general audiences. That they're very accepting of it when it comes to particular works that may have always felt that way, even though that's not necessarily the case.
1: Absolutely, and and I think it can also depend where certain traditions begin. Um, yeah, you know, musical theater is everywhere, but kind of the American stronghold of, of Amer of musical theaters like this is what we expect. Uh, but I remember uh, even watching that Disney film in the nineteen nineties, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I was in I was in Italy at the time, I was in Florence, and my friend and I we didn't we wanted to see something it was really cold out we thought and so we went to go see it and i assumed that the songs would at least be in english i didn't know that they would have dubbed the entire thing this was yeah the mid 90s and the entire thing was in italian which i don't speak very well and i got the main idea you know and it was it was a good lesson for me to to think you know, I, I would tend to see films or um, plays and musicals, opera. I don't speak that language, so I'm not going to go and try to experience it. I'll feel left out. It's not worth my time. But I'm like, why can't I see a children's movie with music in a different language? And it, was, it was pretty clear. So.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the history, you know, Shakespeare, he used words from other languages really fairly frequently in in in, the, in his text. Um, why has that always been successful? And why was that so successful? You know, from from way back in his time to today? Um, Is it is it about, you know, his language? Is it about, you know, the the universality of his stories? What do you think is the reason for that?
1: I think there are actually a number of reasons the the English language was developed, was in great development at the time. So Shakespeare's birth certificate was in Latin, but his death certificate was in English. And so we see a shift during the time that he was alive of English becoming more commonplace um, in the United Kingdom or what became the United Kingdom in England at the time. Uh, But also... English as as syntax, as grammar. Like they, In the Renaissance, there wouldn't have been anything like a spelling bee. <laughs> that would have been um, totally ridiculous. I mean, it just I think even the concept of it. So we see the standardization of English during that time in part because the printing press, um, Gutenberg's printing press was in, in the 1500s, but also the King James Bible, which gets um, published um, in the early 1600s, and that starts to spread and, and standardize religiosity and Christianity, but also the English language. And, and so with standardization, we get kind of more concrete ideas about what words mean and phrases, but Shakespeare's theater or the early modern theater um, in general, that was the entertainment. And that's where people went and kind of like how we learn slang you know from what used to be in my age from radio and from you know the few tv shows that were made for teenagers uh, back in the 1980s but also this is where people would go and actually bring books commonplace books and write down different words and phrases that they heard so shakespeare is credited for giving and somewhere between 1,500 to 2,500 words and expressions to the English language. He didn't create them all, but it's the first time we have these in in writing. And so a lot of language was coined kind of in that theater. And so the the audience listening to Shakespeare's plays, seeing Shakespeare's plays the first time that they were ever performed, hadn't heard expressions about, um, I mean, there are so many of them, right? (laughs) and so they were new and, and it's really Shakespeare's theater is considered to be a theater of the auditory because the early modern, the Renaissance people heard better than we did. And because they didn't have big fog machines and special effects the way that we do now, they had to um, come out and listen. So the Hamlet opens with who's there, you know, which is um, from a literary perspective, a question that will kind of undergird the entire play about, you know, it's real and there's a ghost and, and who are we and I, I am you know, so Hamlet the Dane and comes, you know, at the very end and so forth. But also, um, because it starts with two watchmen, when the actor comes out, the character says, who's there? And the other actor is standing somewhat nearby. The audience understands that either one of the characters is visually impaired. Or that it's nighttime because he can't see the other person. Like Bernardo, is that you? Um, and so that was that was a cue to the audience to imagine something. So the language was more important because now when we go see Hamlet, there's a fog machine, there's nighttime birds squawking, the the the, the lights are dim, and we don't we don't have to do that work. We don't even understand that that's a stage direction. So. So the, the words were incredibly important and they were going to kind of jump all over the board to create images in ways that we don't actually have to work as much now to do it.
0: That's so fascinating to hear that because you know, it's something our artistic director, John Doyle, um, that he talks about a lot that it's, it's harder for, for some audience members um, to see plays that have less stuff nowadays because they're not accustomed to listening what you're talking about there. And you know there we have had plenty of complaints, you know, from me from um, you know, a marketer, and I hear it from audiences all the time that you know, they want more more action, they want more things on the stage and they're not interested in the style um, that we often present, which is, you know, there's not a lot of scenery. there's not a lot of extra elements to everything. And it's about that audience really taking a moment to truly, listen to all of the words that are being said and to and to imagine and to embrace that idea a little bit more so it, it's interesting how in a way we've evolved past that and then you know there are productions nowadays that are trying to get us back to that place again
1: right and in you know the radio, we're we are able to listen without the visual, but watching a TV on mute can actually be incredibly difficult. You're like, ugh. And so, so we, we have the capability and the imagination, but I think it's like any other practice, right? If you don't, if you aren't accustomed to it. And it's also, um, we tend to, to valorize the visual. So if there's a video of something, oh, we'll watch the video. Why would you rather listen to the audio recording? And so I, in, in my classroom, I try to, I'll typically, at least when I teach one text, listen to it. And the students, I'm like, no, you can listen to it. Why watch it? Because you'll get distracted and it helps you focus on the words. And I think that it's a good practice. I listened to this one podcast on my iPod about 15 years ago, and I would download it every Friday and listen to it in these two men would talk about politics and I promised myself to never look up what they look, look, what they look like. And finally, after it went off the air, I finally looked them up. And one man was familiar. I had seen him on different TV shows and news shows over the years, but I always pictured them like those two Muppets, you know, who sit up in the balcony.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And, And, and I was so glad I didn't, have to imagine the people because I was listening in a different way. It wasn't better or worse, but it provided me a different type of imaginative experience.
0: Yeah, I I, I feel that way too. I think that probably happens for a lot of people when they see someone they either know from the radio or something like that. I remember listening you know, to Fresh Air with Terry Gross for years. And when I finally, I went to a live event where she was being interviewed, and I realized I had never known what she looked like. And that's not who I was picturing and it wasn't in a bad way or a good way, but that just wasn't at all who I was picturing. And I think that's, that's so fascinating because our listening skills, whether it's with a a podcast or radio show, or if we're listening to like text from a play, we can paint this image in our mind and it can, it can bring so many things forward that, that we didn't even expect. So um, that's just, that's just fascinating to me.
1: And it's like, what happened What happened when MTV came out, right? Video killed the radio yeah. star. And and now when I listen to music on my phone, Spotify plays part of a video for me, and I don't look at it. I'm really bothered by that. I don't, and in seeking out the video, I mean, Thriller, the video didn't make the song, but it certainly, you can't separate the song from that video. Right. When we have other instances, we're like, oh, it, she's dancing around and, and like, why, why is this <laughs> happening in the song that I, and so it, it changes the relationship. And so I think that's where the emphasis on language can do a whole bunch of different things and, and accents and language um, can kind of play around with what we expect from the visual.
0: So there's been a bit of a resurgence recently in, or I don't know if it's a resurgence, but it's a um, a, a moment where a lot of these bilingual uh, works are, are being seen um, especially with zoom, right? and and this pandemic theater. um why why do you think that is? And what are some of these these productions that have had have found success right now?
1: Well, I think in, in our current moments and uh, with all of the tragedy and hardship of it, one of the things that um, any type of lecture or performance you know if this is enabled is that we can be in different places. And so if you really wanted an international theater festival year, we finally got it in 2020 um, for all the wrong reasons. But you can assemble a cast of 25 people who are all in, in different countries and from different places. And um, it's very democratizing in that sense. Uh, and that's pretty amazing. But it, at the same time, um, I think that's one of the reasons why. Just simply because you have this farther reach and you're like, hey, I always wanted to work with someone who's in you know, this different country. And, and they sent me their stuff, so OK. Um, the the demands are different. And the other part of it is that there's this idea we want to kind of reach more people. And a lot of times, uh, casting practices, or a choice of a play, or incorporation of another language is means to outreach means to gain a larger audience, uh, or to reach different, you know, reach a different type of audience. But I also think that there's a playfulness and creativity, that when you can't, build the big set or have a chandelier swing in, like, how do we dress it up? Like, what are we going to do with it? And one of the things that I found with bilingual and multilingual productions is that it really kind of empowers the director or the actors. They get to be translators too. You get to work with it more. And when we're not physically near each other and we don't get to work with the text in all the ways that we typically do in the theater, it's another mechanism to kind of pull. And you're not spending weeks on staging and blocking, <laughs> so so yeah. uh, you know, and and hopefully your Zoom performances are a little shorter um, than than real life ones. We found that too. So and I think it's just a different kind of mechanism to play with. And when it comes to canonical texts written before 1925 or something like that, they're free and in the public domain. So, and thanks to the internet, if you're not that if you don't have a full translation or something you can probably find someone who may have done a portion of it. Or or I think there's just a number of different reasons why we're seeing them.
0: Are there some examples of, of ones you've you've seen that you've liked recently or that you think have been have worked extremely well?
1: Well, uh, just Zoom ones or, or bilingual theater?
0: Well, anything. Yeah, Zoom and, and not.
1: Uh, my, my, I'm working on a book. I, I worked on a collected edition with another scholar on... Um, Shakespeare and Latinidad. I work on Shakespeare and Latinx theater and all the different intersections of Latinx culture and Shakespeare. I'm working on a monograph uh, that's on Latinx Shakespeare's, on Latinx themed Shakespeare productions, all of which have some amount of Spanish. Sometimes it's sprinkled in, sometimes it's half of it. And so I saw a production at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2011, Measure for Measure, directed by Bill Rauch, who was then the artistic director. And he set it in kind of a border town, 1970s, maybe like Los Angeles area, where some of the main characters, Isabella, her brother, um, Claudio and Angelo, were all played by Latinx actors. um, And they all spoke Spanish at different times. And, uh, and, Angelo, who's kind of the bad guy in the show, uh, he was kind of the Latino who had made a lot of himself and gotten into politics, and kind of mm. it's very different relationship. But when Isabella talks to her brother in jail, they, do, they kind of move into Spanish intimate moments. But there's a character in that play named Juliet, who's supposed to marry Claudio, and that's kind of where the, the whole problem comes from. When yeah. she was portrayed as only Spanish speaking, and so when she has to deal with the court, she needs a translator wherever she goes. And the linguistic isolation made, made it easier to understand her isolation from kind of from the entire society. And it works so well. Hmm. And that's kind of what it wasn't the first production that I saw and heard of, but it was one of the ones that I said, this is a way of, of actually facilitating understanding. And I think that the, the more diverse our acting pool and directing pool and creative and, you know, just where we are, um, we're seeing more people who can kind of bring that on um, and and contribute that. So, but yeah, there have been totally um, different types of productions, including there was a Hamlet Prince of Cuba at a solo repertory in 2012. I know there've never been any Princess of Cuba, but that's okay, right? <laughs> um, And they they had uh, all of the, the lead roles and most, yeah, all of the lead roles were bilingual and they performed... The cut-down version of Hamlet in English for I think about a month, and then they performed it entirely in Spanish for a weekend, and as it and it moved to different places in Florida, and so you know there were kind of different types of theater, and in that the actor um, Frankie J Alvarez, who was on Looking, um, he was Hamlet, Prince of Cuba, uh, when he he was actually the first person at a major theater to play Hamlet as a Latino or Latin American, even though. Well, Martin Sheen, who's half Spanish, played him in Joe Papp's *Naked Hamlet* many years earlier, and Oscar Isaac has played him later on, and, and a number of other Latinx or, or Spanish actors have done so. But to play the character as Latino, um, kind of, we, so we start seeing different things in different characterization when the language also brings it to the forefront.
0: You wrote uh, this piece for HowlRound called Staging Bilingual Classical Theater, and in it, you have a number of strategies that you mentioned for integrating four languages on stage. Um, can we talk about some of those strategies and and uh, why they exist and and how they work and, and all of that?
1: Mm-hmm. Of course.
0: So, The one of the first ones, I mean, I think you have like 10 of them, um, and we don't need to go into into all of them necessarily. But one of the ones that right off the bat is I think the first one you say is about humor, that it can be used to a humorous effect. But then there's also this kind of odd area where if you go too far one way, you can isolate people in a way that's really unpleasant. So how how can you use humor effectively without doing that?
1: Right. And it can be a challenge. And I, I take that, that is the first one. And I feel like I saw that more with Spanish Golden Age Theater performed in English mm. um, from spending time with the Royal Shakespeare Company to see like what they were doing. But also when people want to give a, a Mediterranean flair or a Latin flavor, this is where the problem comes in. Performing a text entirely in English and putting in an olay like doesn't really, um, it actually does, I think, can, can be more of a detriment right um and it doesn't bring people into a language or culture it actually just kind of seems like a, a high five to it or you know i um, a tip of the hat so i think it, it it depends on the genre and the overall kind of um affect of your performance if it's a comedy it can actually play really well um unless unless it's a lower character or comedic character who who speaks Spanish in that way. I think that, and I keep on speaking about Spanish because I speak Spanish um, and, and I'm dealing with a lot of um, Latinx and, and Spanish language productions, but it can really be any type of, it can be any language. But uh, but I think that uh, there is this, I don't wanna say it's a fine line, but it's, it's a series of choices that have to do with casting That have to do with when is the language invoked? Is it for one scene um, or not? Joe Pack, when he staged his kind of bare bones called Naked Hamlet, um, no one was naked, but um, because it was a stripped down production. Uh, as I mentioned, Martin Sheen, who's, who's half Spanish, uh, he, he played Hamlet. And when he did his soliloquies, Hamlet became Ramon, the Puerto Rican janitor. And in, and he spoke in Spanish, and he spoke with a Puerto Rican accent, and there's there's a lot of challenges and problems with that. Um, but but what Pac was attempting to do was to show that the language um, was kind of like an inner self, like this is who he was within, which. Was problematic, but uh, but I but it's understandable. So actually, that production didn't have much Spanish in it, and it was meant to be funny and lighten the mood of Hamlet to to create a character that was more antic than depressed. And so so even in the reviews, people aren't taking issue with the Spanish language. Um, they just had a problem with this, this. This is supposed to appeal to young people, and and we don't think it's it, it's showing fidelity to the text. So so it i think there are a series of choices there and factors which um there there's a, a diarist we i think sometimes we call an essayist named samuel Pepys, and and he kept this diary uh going to, of his kind of exploits going to the theater during the restoration era and much of what we know about restoration theater in in, in england is due to his diary and and he also he knew a bunch of people. He would go backstage. He would talk about Betterton taking the role. And he also uh, talked about, in his own diary, his private life. And sometimes when he would refer to having spent the afternoon leisurely in bed with his wife, he would write about it in French. And so even for his own personal diary, which wasn't meant to be read by people for centuries to come, he's using another language to talk about his sexy time. And, um, <laughs> and, and um, people do that. They have one language for one thing and one for another. So I think that if it can be incorporated with sincerity, the audience picks up on that. But, um, but yes, the questions of the status of the character, how it's being used, and if it just feels like an outlier, right? Um, and but we we also most of us tend to use quote foreign languages even even in our english maybe even without realizing it and so if if the theater is meant to resemble which may not be the objective but if it's meant to resemble kind of speech patterns so that's the reason for incorporating another language we tend to mix in our words sometimes anyway because they're part of our common culture and so forth as well like um benvolio's first greeting to romeo in Romeo and Juliet is Good Morrow, Cousin. And in a stage reading, bilingual reading at Chicago Shakespeare from 2008, they changed it to Buenos Dias, Cousin. And Buenos Dias is by far easier to understand, even for non-Spanish speaking people than Good Morrow. And Cousin, in Benvoli and and Romeo are cousins, but Primo, but you could use Tio, Amigo, Hombre, it could be translated a number of different ways. But Buenos Dias makes a lot of Sense to people, good morrow is harder. So it, it's kind of getting over the fear of what is more foreign to today's audience: Elizabethan or Jacobean English or modern day Spanish. Hmm. Yeah,
0: that's interesting because that's also one of the things you talk about a bit is about um, you know that that you can create an intimacy with the audience and, and make them truly comfortable by having having this all be a part of the work. It reminded me very much of. Um, I, prior to working at Classic Stage Company, I worked at Primary Stages, which is another off-Broadway company in New York. And a couple of years ago, they produced a production by Tanya Siracho called Fade, um, which is a really great play. Um, And um, the opening of the play is largely silent for the first few minutes. And there are a couple little bits of dialogue that are either spoken, um, I think it's either the characters speaking to themselves, or there's just a few very short lines, and they're in Spanish. And it was very interesting watching the audience, who didn't expect necessarily to see a play entirely in Spanish, start to get a little concerned and worried at some points in time that, that oh, did I buy a ticket for a play entirely in Spanish? You would watch bristling kind of start, start to happen. Um, and one of the ways that I think we tried at the company to embrace that a bit more was the, the, the pre-show speech, right, that happens, you know, turn off your, your cell phones and all of that. Um, it was delivered by Tanya, the playwright, over a recording. Uh, it was done in English. And then as soon as that was done, it was done entirely in Spanish afterwards, which I thought was a, a really nice way of, of not only welcoming a Spanish-speaking audience, but making sure that the entire audience knew that this was going to be an experience that was bilingual. So I think once that happened a little bit more over time that bristling at the beginning of the play it decreased because people really were comfortable and and happy with with the fact that they knew what they were getting themselves into um so i think there's something so crucial about the audience being being aware and being kind of along for the ride with it if that makes sense
1: yes and and also does every word in the play need to be understood by the audience? And my playwright friends will, might say yes. but but even the original audience going to see Twelfth Night um, by Shakespeare, about half the people in the audience wouldn't have understood the Latin phrases when they when they were spoken. And so if I've used I usually I watch a lot of um, things on my television um, that, with the closed captioning because I'm curious to see how it's translated. And And sometimes they'll say um, romantic music playing in the background. Sometimes they say Nora Jones music playing in the background. Sometimes they write the lyrics and they're different types of translation. Like, am I supposed to be, and then one time I was watching something and it said, um, uh, I can't remember which, which it said hip hop music. And then another time it said like um, the actual person's name. I don't remember what the song was, but it gave the song title as if the title should be recognition enough for me to understand the mood. So what's the point of the piece of dialogue um, or anything else you might hear or see on stage? Is it to give the sentiment? Is it to be recognized as French cabaret music? Am I supposed to know that's Edith Piaf? Am I supposed to know that's St. l'amour and think of the words myself? Like what is the kind of experience, um, the effective quality of that? So sometimes the, a foreign language is meant to feel foreign to the audience. And you're like, oh no, that person in the audience does understand Swedish. And I meant to just throw the Swedishism in, you know, for the sound of, of Swedish, right? But there's probably someone in your audience who's like, hey, um, I know what that means, especially in New York, right? So I I think that that's part of it too. That what you're talking about with Tanya Saracho's play is that the Spanish is there to kind of get you into the culture, um, and if a, people understand what's being said they're having a different experience and it goes back to the idea that that the fact that audiences are plural we say audience like it's singular and people get very different experiences from the theater based off of what they go in with linguistically as well as culturally and and their their knowledge of plays
0: how do you think we break the habit of some audience members feeling the need that they need to know every last thing that's happening and see every last thing and if you know, if they were watching that play and they didn't speak Spanish, they might say, well, but I didn't know what was going on and, and I had to know what was going on because it was really important. How do we break that so that people are comfortable either not knowing what lines are or not even necessarily understanding why things are a certain way? You know, I think of a lot of experimental theater that that I've seen and especially when I was younger and first learning about experimental theater where I didn't know half of what was happening on stage. I didn't understand it, but I could still get something out of it. And it, it was, and as long as I, w- I had to become okay with the fact that I didn't know what was going on, and that's okay. It's all right for me not to know everything all the time. How do we get audiences more comfortable with that?
1: That that's a great question. And and I'm a Shakespearean scholar, and I have I still have a lot to learn about Shakespeare's language. If anybody comes into a Shakespeare play they're like I understood that 100. percent Okay, well, they, they probably have a little bit more reading. I mean, it's difficult, right? You know, the language is yeah. complex. And the reason we keep on going back to the same stories and that same type of work is that we get something new out of it every single time, right? We hear a line, and we're like, oh, I didn't catch that before. Or it's staged differently and it makes us understand something that we didn't. But I think that the, I can make some grand statements about our culture about we want we want to feel that, that we are getting what we're, there's, there's one right answer. And and there's one experience to have, and we we should know what it is. I I think it also happens in school, where we're taught to analyze, and every single line is important, and we're tested in certain ways. And then to go for entertainment and kind of make that shift can be a difficult thing. But uh, I think there's kind of a lot of um, different ideas about what we think entertainment really is. And, and unfortunately, when it comes to canonical literature, um, canonical dramatic literature, it, it tends people tend to be exposed to it. I was exposed to the theater by my parents. And, and, and But a lot of people come to it first in school and it's considered work and there is a certain esteem to understanding it. And so when people feel left out that they feel like they haven't kind of achieved what they were supposed to. But I think another factor too is uh, there was the the bilingual West Side Story revival, Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book, um, directed it in 2009, and it started in DC, and it was 50% that the sharks sang and spoke in Spanish and the jets in English. And they had it like that, and they tried with the supertitles, kind of like an opera. And then when it moved to New York, they started taking out a lot of the Spanish. And by the time it traveled, it was only quote 12% in Spanish with, I think I feel pretty and a boy like that. Um, uh, and there are many reasons why people said they took the Spanish out. Arthur Lawrence, um, who's now deceased, said um, it, we, it was always an experiment. But there was this idea that people paying Broadway ticket prices didn't want to hear things and not understand. I'm like, well, it's West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet. And you can follow along, right? But uh, there were also a scholar named Brian Herrera, who's at Princeton, who wrote a wonderful article as well about how those people those of us who speak spanish um there wasn't much care taken to have the spanish sound as if it were from the same place so when we have um vocal voice coaches in the theater and stuff like that if you spoke spanish it was kind of like the united nations of the of the latino community you're like well okay she's from argentina that guy's from texas blah, blah, blah. and it was kind of discombobulating right you know they like, kind of have this experience but uh I, you know, I, I think it's a matter of getting used to this idea. As you said, the, the wrestling of the, the audience coming in, of like, am I going to be lost? And it's this like I'm sitting in the dark for two hours. I don't want to feel lost. Um, so I, I don't know if I have one great answer uh, for that, but I think it is about uh, I think it's about pleasure. Like, do you, Is it a pleasurable experience? And and that that's kind of a, I'm not sure everyone goes to the theater for, for pleasure.
0: Though one other kind of pillar that you kind of talk about, uh, that I'd love to touch on is the idea that, um, it can modernize work to, to, to put it in another language and and to clarify it a bit more. What, what do you mean when, by that?
1: Well, typically when, when a text is translated, it's translated into a more modern language. So, one of the reasons that uh, Shakespeare is more pop is pretty popular in Spain, and not more so but on par with Spanish Golden Age playwrights. Mm-hmm. at about the same time, is that Shakespeare is in contemporary Spanish. And the Spanish of the Spanish Golden Age is, is Espanol Antiguo, and it's actually kind of an older language than Shakespearean English is to us. It would be more it would be a little bit closer to Chaucer if it were in English. It's an, a more it's an older language. But so when we read Uh, Chekhov, for example, in English, it's in contemporary English. When you read the Greek plays, it it might be in a heightened type of poetry, but it's in contemporary English. It's actually easier to read something written in antiquity, written in 450 BCE, um, than it is to read Shakespeare because it's been translated for us into a more contemporary language. So when you mix in a different language into Shakespeare, it's probably a more modern language. And that's why Buenos Dias is easier than Good Morrow. And uh, so it can modernize it because when, if even if you set, uh, I keep on going back to Shakespeare, but any type of canonical play into a contemporary setting, um, and, and you have, let's say, if you're, if you're staging Electra, um, and, and it's written in poetry um, to kind of convey the things that I wouldn't understand about ancient Greek, right? Um, but it, it's kind of in a heightened language. If you mix in a few French words, they'll probably be in modern day French. And it takes us into this kind of um, more theatrical moment where we're not in one time period, we're not in one culture, uh, but it also will, I don't speak French, to non-French speakers probably feel a little bit more contemporary. And so that's where a a foreign language um, to the text can modernize it because it will sound more familiar to us
0: well we're we're almost about done with our time um but one thing I would like to ask you is that we uh with the the revision of our podcast this season, we've been asking all of our guests about plays and works that they think should be considered classics but are not for for whatever reason. um do you have any picks some a selection or two or 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 more uh, that you would recommend?
1: I. I would recommend Jose Rivera's Marisol, or Marisol. Uh, it, it's a play that came out in 1992 and takes place in kind of post-apocalyptic New York. And Marisol is is a um, Puerto Rican young woman and there are a few different characters. The one male character is played by the same actor. And so there, I think there are six different characters. But it it takes on this certain moment in New York uh, written at the same time as Kushner's *Angels in America*, and *Angels* has this kind of um, post-Brechtian uh, take on all sorts of magical things going on that really obviously focuses on AIDS. And Rivetta's play um, focuses on homelessness, and and they both speak to each other actually quite well and come out at the same time and have these kind of magical elements. Um, there's there's some theory of the absurd and magical realism in Rivera's play. and I have been waiting patiently for a theater company to stage these two plays in repertory and and you could use the same dramaturgy you could even probably use some of the same sets and and it would and I think it would create a good conversation about the sentiment, especially about New York and the coming of the millennium at that time. but Rivera's play does it kind of picks up the the literary genre of magical realism that tends to get applied or used to be applied to anything written by a latinx author whereas puerto rican um and it's it tends to be misused and misapplied um for anything that's imaginative that happens on stage but but he, his work is incredibly creative and i every time i see metasol i like i i get something as i said very new out of it and i I would really like to have a conversation um, about that and, and Kushner um, together because I think that there's there's a lot to, to say. Um, there's, there's also this thing that I have about uh, when we have a famous playwright or a famous author, this is their big work, right? And uh, the first play by Arthur Miller that was on Broadway was called The Man Who Had All the Luck and it was a Broadway disaster. I think it had four shows and it closed. Um, and, and right after that, yeah. Um, right after that, he wrote All My Sons and then became this big famous person, right? But I I saw The Man Who Had All The Luck, I think in 2008 at the Donmar Warehouse in, in London. And it's this wonderful kind of pleasurable, almost kind of like magical play as well. I guess that's, I guess that's what I enjoy. Um, <laughs> or or maybe these types of plays don't get to be considered classics, right? Um, and and I think that it, it would expand our idea of of the writer. Like when we say Shakespeare, people might think of four or five major plays, but he also wrote quirky things like, you know, the two Noble kinsmen and and and, and 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 we don't get to to kind of grasp onto the stuff that doesn't get as much recognition. And when I think of of Miller, I'm like, people have to see this play. It got some kind of good resurgence in the last 20 years, and, and different companies performing it. And rumored they're going to make a film of it. But um, but I think these. When I think of Arthur Miller, I Death of a Salesman. I'm like, he did this totally different thing, and I wish that got more play as well.
0: So Cool. Well, i'm i'm gonna add them to my reading list because they both sound fantastic mm-hmm. um thank you so much for for joining me this has been really wonderful and uh, best of luck with the the forthcoming book we'll be sure to uh add that to the reading list too once it's available that people can find on our on our website and um just thank you this has been great
1: thank you this has been absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on Classic Stage Company, visit us online at classicstage.org, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to receive updates when new episodes are released. Again, I'm Phil Haas, and we'll be back next month with an all-new episode of the CSC Podcast. Take care.